wishing everybody well. Anybody got any questions today? Anything you actually want to ask? <laughs> If we really had to wait uh, until all our karma was finished and given its all its results before we could attain nirvana, then probably never attain nirvana. It would be very difficult. But if one practices and overcomes one's greed, anger, and delusion, manages to let that go of the mind, free the mind from the greed, anger, and delusion. One can transcend the karma, so one's made in the path, one goes beyond it. And one has to wait for everything to give its results. Another question is that the... Um, <coughs> our thoughts are <coughs> all mind created. Uh, so our feeling, our information is all created by our mind. So if we know that they are created by, by the mind, so we can say that we need not have to believe in what we created. Is that the correct understanding? That's correct. We don't have to um, fully believe or attach to every thought, every emotional mood that arises in our heart because they're all coming from ultimately uh, they're coming from ignorance as has thought. But of course as you're practicing while you are you're practicing recognizing unwholesome or skill unskillful thoughts and letting them go, abandoning them. The skillful thoughts, the useful ones that we use in the practice to help us practice and progress and understand things. Well you you don't just let them go, you use them that you can use thought as a skillful means in your practice. But even then, even the good thoughts, the skillful thoughts, you can also reflect these are not self. And these are still states of mind, conditions of mind that ultimately are not self. They're what we call dhammas. Buddha's word dhamma, ramana, just objects of mind that come up and arise, pass away. They're not to be taken as self any kind of lasting essence of self. So as you practice that's that's the understanding you develop more and more towards your own thoughts. That everything is not self, it's just Dharma that arises, passes away. There was a question about what happens to the mind of an arahant, an enlightened being, when they die. 
and we practice the Buddhist path to purify our minds from suffering, from the causes of suffering, and reach that state of purity, that's what we call enlightenment or nirvana. The ones that attain that, what happens after they die? And said, well, this is a very you know, sort of old question. People are always asking this question over and over again. He said, in the time of the Buddha, um, there was one monk, an enlightened monk, who was about to go off wandering, leave the monastery, and his teacher was Venerable Sariputta, a very wise, enlightened disciple of the Buddha. He just wanted to test his disciple before he went off wandering around the countryside wanted to test him to see if he understood properly so he said well what happens when the mind if they ask you what happens when the mind to the mind of an arahant when they die he said well when uh, a being passes away and they die rupa in form physical form arises passes away Vaitana, feeling, arises, passes away. Sanya, my uh, memory, perception, arises, passes away. Sankhara, thought formations, arise, pass away. Vijnana, sense consciousness, arise, pass away. The mind of the Arahant knows this, knows that these five candors, what make up a human being, arise and pass away there. They're impermanent. The mind of the Arahant knows that, sees that fully. This is what purifies the mind. It has clear insight, clear knowledge and vision of the way things are. So there's no delusion, no attachment to self. That mind is pure then, becomes pure. And it just, you can say it just is. It's that purity, that of vision and insight, it's just what it is. The mind doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't go someplace or go anywhere, it's just the mind has been purified and it knows the body and mind or nama rupa arises, passes away, just knows that much. on that trip to Sri Lanka about 18 years ago and uh, we had decided to uh, walk up Sri Pada to pay respects to the Buddha's footprints on top of the mountain and because it's footprint made by the Buddha somebody, one of his late supporters had offered a crystal chedi or stupa, a relic container that's empty, he offered it and that was taken up in his bag up to the top of the mountain and when we arrived up there everybody uh, chanted paritas and meditated and then on the way down just as it's beginning to walk down uh, and then thought of this little stupa, glass stupa we don't have any relics for this he looked in his bag and found a lot of relics of the field and just beginning to walk down the mountain. 
in his meditation he actually saw like a ray of light coming to his back so he knew something something come and that's what relics are in there they're surrounded or suffused with the pure energy of the pure mind Buddha so they have their own aura or you might say radiant light and he saw that and that's what attracted him to open the, the bag and look for the actual relics in there Some people have uh, made Barami uh, in this way and they sometimes have relics appear and in their house if they have a shrine place, a suitable place sometimes relics just appear there or in temples uh, and when relics do appear it generally increases our faith we have more faith arising the Buddha Dhamma Sangha leads on to us wanting to practice more and some people have this experience. You just ask them, does anyone have such an experience? Mm. And Jane was just saying, Chomdida said she had been given one relic, and then over time a second relic came, <coughs> and then eventually a third relic. And, and Jan says, often relics can be the cause for our faith to arise, so we put more effort into our practice. We do more meditation, chanting, offer more dharma, try to keep the precepts. So often the goodness in our own hearts comes up and this can also lead to the relics increasing in number or sometimes they increase in size, one relic can grow or more can appear and this can happen. Should we keep the uh, relic in the glass uh, so it's exposed or visible or should we keep it in a metal enclosure that's not exposed in light? doesn't really matter as long as it's something safe it's a good idea so it can't, they can't drop out and if it's not it doesn't matter whether it's transparent or it's uh, closed from the light Yes, that's correct, what the monk explained. And the teacher Samabhad is the Buddha's explanation of the process of how dukkha or suffering arises for us as human beings. So have, uh, the, perhaps the short, shortened version is you have ignorance, avicca, is the cause for craving, is the cause for attachment to arise, is the cause for suffering. And that's uh, that's a reflection we, we use in our practice. If we develop the path, Marga, the path that the Buddha taught, bringing up and sila, samadhi, panya, mindfulness, insight, you're seeing this process of uh, craving and attachment arising to bring your mindfulness to, to know that process and 
little by little abandon your craving attachment so more and more suffering arises you reach nirvana, cessation of suffering, the end of suffering so when monks teach meditation often they talk in a very simplified way really they've taken the heart, they're talking about the heart of the teachers have about it, what we're practicing when we teach practice mindfulness keep your mind Economous in the middle towards all your moods and emotions. So if you have uh, attraction or liking, just know that, but don't attach to that mood. If you have aversion, uh, fear, aversion, negativity, know that, but don't attach. Keep your mind in the middle with mindfulness. That's the way to lead, that will lead to the end of suffering. That's practicing the Patichu Samabhava might just not use the word that he's come about and explain every step of the process in detail, but that's actually the heart of that, that teaching, the teaching some about that's what we're practicing when we meditate. When you learn the whole teaching of the teacher Samubhada, all the twelve stages of dependent origination, so you Avichampachya, Sankara, Sankara Pachya, Vinyana. Every stage you learn that. What you're really learning or looking at is the very refined knowledge and insight of the Buddha. He could explain every step of the process, put it out for us to see. But in terms of how us as students of the Buddha practice, you're not necessarily having to look at every step all the time and that would be very difficult and a lot to think about, a lot to know you're actually practicing very much at the level of what we call upadana, dhanha, pachya upadana and craving gives rise to attachment, attachment gives rise to suffering you bring mindfulness in at that point in your meditation, in your daily practice you establish mindfulness as craving is arising the attachment is arising and you let go at that point through the power of mindfulness and insight you let go and you're little by little you're purifying your mind abandoning craving and attachment you reach the end of suffering but you're not necessarily sitting there thinking every step of this process Vinyana, Namarupa, Salayata, all the different stages you're not sitting there thinking of, you're just establishing mindfulness at the point where craving arises and you're letting go, abandoning craving, and that you're practicing at that level and that leads to the purification of the mind. You don't have to necessarily go through all the, the different aspects of that teaching. Ajahn Chah gave the comparison and said, when suffering arises in your heart, very fast, it can be instantaneous. And you haven't got time to sort of stop and say, Avicha, Patiya, Sankara, and go through these 12 stages. You know, it's just happiness, just like that. It's like someone being up a tree and they fall out from the top of the tree, they fall down. They don't have time to count how many branches and twigs they're passing as they go down, they just slip and boom, suddenly they're on the ground and it hurts with a thud, suffering. Sufferings like that. So the important way to practice is establish mindfulness. So when you have sense contact, every day we're seeing, we're hearing, we're thinking and remembering things. Every time there's sense contact, establish mindfulness and know how is my mind now? Is it 
falling into liking and delighting in something, excited by something. Are we reacting with anger, negativity? Again, the example, say you see somebody, you don't like that person, you don't like what they're doing, you rise to anger straight away. That's the suffering, straight away craving and attachment has come up. But if you establish mindfulness at that point, you can quickly abandon that craving, that feeling of anger, your mind returns to normality, returns to peace. If you keep doing that over and over again, well, you're going to be purifying your mind. So you're using Paticca Samupada or Itapachayada and this process, description of the process of how suffering arises, you're using it, but in a very practical way. You're not sort of theorizing or analyzing it sort of state by saying you're just saying suffering is arising here, I must let go of this. The way we come to understand truth, understand the Dhamma, is not necessarily through just studying the books and the theories. Uh, they, they have their place, but it's also more practical, just application of the Dhamma in daily life. So, Tanajan says, in your homes you probably have many possessions, many things that you cherish, look after. To see the Dhamma, you maybe just have to contemplate, everything I own is impermanent. My possessions are impermanent. They break, they wear out, they get lost, they get stolen. Everything is impermanent, won't last forever. And you just contemplate that regularly. That will already start to give you a sense of letting go, letting go of attachment. But at the same time you practice that, you also have to have wisdom. So you look at everything in your house and say, oh, it's all impermanent. It's all going to um, change and, and, and degenerate. And be, be lost from me eventually. You might think that, but you also have to tell your children, you know, be careful, look after the things we have and home. Don't just be careless just because you know, they're impermanent. It doesn't mean to say you can go around dropping things and breaking things. That would be foolish or ignorant. I've said the story, there's once a young novice, a young boy who was a novice in a monastery, and the teacher every day is teaching, everything is impermanent, this world is impermanent, this body is impermanent, our possessions are impermanent. And this novice, his only real possession was his monk's bowl, his novice monk's bowl for collecting food, it's stainless steel, so it's quite a solid, heavy bowl. He's looking at it and said, hmm. the teacher says everything's impermanent, but this bowl is still here every day and day after day, I still have my bowl. Not impermanent. So he took a hammer, and he thought, hmm, see if it's impermanent. He started bashing, bang, bang, bang. Of course, very quickly, got dents and holes in it because he was bashing it with a hammer. And he thought, oh, it is impermanent. Then <laughs> the teacher came along and saw it and said, oh, what a foolish novice. We don't need to live here anymore. So when you see impermanence, it's, you know, it's, that's a reflection you do inside your mind to give rise to wisdom. But you still look after this world, your family, your possessions, it's not that much you see impermanence, you don't care anymore. But if you can see impermanence, when things do break or disappear or you separate from the things you love, the people you love, you won't suffer because you know already this is impermanence. This is how it stops you suffering. Something breaks, you know, it's impermanence, so you accept that in your heart, you're not suffering. There was a question about uh, 
in our daily life we have to earn a living, but the nature of this world is a bit uncertain, the economy is uncertain, we always have some worry, anxiety about the future, will we have enough money for ourselves, our family, for everything that might arise, health issues, old age, sickness and so on. This is a, a basic worry, anxiety that we often have. How should we deal with that skillfully? And Jan suggested, well, then maybe you might practice on two levels, as it were. The first level is the conventional level. The basic reality is that we live in this world. We need to eat and have shelter, and uh, we need to see doctors and go to the hospital sometimes. So we do need funds and possessions and a house and all of these things. So we do have to devote our time to finding them. We have to work at that, and it's tiring, it can be quite frustrating and difficult, but it's something that's essential for living in the world. We live in the world and we have that responsibility, especially if we have a family. But on the second level, the deeper level, we also have to reflect that everything is impermanent. The economy is impermanent, the wealth that we find is impermanent, this body is impermanent, this life is impermanent. We're born into this world, but we're constantly experiencing loss, separation from day one. We can't keep everything that we've got just the way we like all the time. Things change. Loss and separation is actually a part of life, a normal part of life. And of course, eventually, we'll experience the greatest loss and separation, very loss of life itself. We have to die one day. So a wise person, as they're living in the world, going about their business, earning a living and so on, they're also on the inside contemplating this very truth to give their own heart a chance to accept and understand this truth. Life is impermanent. The things of this world are impermanent. We must be, one day we'll have to separate from everything we love and like. Um, family, friends, wealth, we must separate. So that when it happens, we don't suffer. We don't get overwhelmed by that experience. The mind understands this is the nature of things. This, this life is impermanent. So you practice on two levels, as it were. thoughts all day long, like every time uh, something, we think about something, how to have mindfulness, uh, uh, strong mindfulness, but the strong mindfulness probably will have no other distracting thoughts than this mindfulness that's coming. Two main strategies. The first is practicing trying to maintain mindfulness through our day. Whatever activities we're doing, whatever our posture, wherever we're going, or whatever we're doing, always try to bring your mind back to the present moment. Establish present moment mindfulness of what I'm doing right now and what's going on in my mind, trying to let go of all the distracted thoughts and different daydreams and moods. But of course that is difficult, especially if we lead a busy life. 
doing many things. So the second strategy is when you have free time, you don't have other duties and responsibilities, use some of that free time to actually meditate in a formal way, sit meditation or walk meditation. And in that period of formal meditation, really try your hardest to just concentrate on a meditation object, such as the breathing, let go of all thinking at that time. So it might be just a period of 15 minutes, half an hour, once a day, twice a day, whatever. In that time, you're really concentrating on your mindfulness practice, letting go of all sorts. Other times, it's a more general mindfulness associated with work and other activities. These two together, then you've got a chance to start um, letting go and having more more mindfulness in all situations. I have asked it from your earlier, I said that. Personally, getting off, having a very successful day, after having a very 100% successful day, if I do everything I wanted to do on that day. I didn't, maybe just before like a couple of seconds or minutes time, I get a very empty feeling. Uh, earlier it was just, a, just an empty feeling. Now, after that feeling, I don't, I've become very sad. And just I just see it's no point of having these things or no point of uh, doing the things I have done. It's like that. And then actually, and what happens is now the Ravi becomes a burden because Ravi is the only thing, only one I like can't leave or something. But I don't want to become. It's never a feeling. It's never become a becoming a nun or something like that. It's not like that. Then I feel very sad again. But a couple of you know times goes again, and things become normal. What is that, and what can I do? I'm not a formally medical person who only uh, do meditation, I don't do it much. What, what you described, he says, is uh, very normal. Many people have this experience where they see the impermanent nature of our existence. Even if our life is going well and we're successful, we do everything we set out to do and achieve. We can still see that everything arises and passes away. Nothing lasts the same forever. So it's quite a common thought or observation people have comes up. They notice that. What happens next though, if one is not really training oneself in understanding the Dharma, the truth of this, tends to lead to sadness, like you said, like a sense of sadness, emptiness, or what's the point of it all and you know, that's suffering ideally when you're seeing the impermanence of things you don't just let your mind go into a state of sadness and unhappiness you stop and reflect on the Dhamma that you've heard from the, the Buddha or teachers that yes this is the nature of, of this world we live in it is impermanent and Reflecting with mindfulness and wisdom at that point, your mind is going to turn away from grasping at anything. It doesn't want to cling on to something that's impermanent. But this turning away doesn't lead to sadness or feeling fed up with things. It actually leads to a sense of peace in the mind because you're seeing truth, understanding truth. It's just that simple understanding. 
things should not be clung to or grasped to because they always disappear or end and that leads to sadness. Therefore the mind is seeing the truth, it's, it's letting go of it internally, it's letting go and it goes to peace. And the more you do that, the more you reflect like that, you actually experience more peace, more inner happiness and joy. This is the joy of Dhamma, because your mind is, is thinking correctly with your experience. It's not just reacting with sadness, it's actually using wisdom to see, well, this is the true nature of things, and the mind is accepting that, becomes peaceful and happy. So that's what you have to learn to do at that point if you ever have that feeling arise and try to reflect as Dhamma and the Buddhist teachings to help you at that point. Yeah, a question down the back somewhere. I was interested in what you were saying brother about when you pass over. And I'm getting near that stage of life now where these things interest me. And then, I've been led to believe in the past, that whatever your belief in your religion, what you believe is what you get. Christians go their way and what they believe and that's what happens. But you are seeming to say that we all, when we die, follow the same path, no matter what your, your religion or your belief. Uh, that's one question, and that's three. And you're on about all the things that are impermanent. I'm wondering, well, what is permanent? And also, um, if all these things are impermanent, I've got someone who's very close to me who lost his son a couple of years ago. He died. And they see and talk to him still. You know, these people, are, this lady is very psychic. Yeah. Um, how would you explain that? Could you answer that question? I'm trying to remember all of them first. Well, <laughs> I'm going to translate them. So. What, first, what is permanent? Yeah. In answer to your question about what is permanent then, if everything else is impermanent, um, and as Jan explained, uh, the Buddha, the word Buddha, really stands for the quality of knowing that all people have in their, in their minds and hearts. We can know things, we can know the truth. The Dhamma is the truth, the way things are, which can be known. What do we know? What does the Buddha know? What can we as human beings know? We can know a few things that are certain, or permanent you might say. That is, we are bound to get old, having been born in this world, we're definitely going to get older. We face sickness and eventually we face death. That's a certainty. Nobody can escape death. You ask what is certain, it's the fact that everything is uncertain or impermanent. What is permanent is the fact everything is impermanent. Our, our life is impermanent. We have old age, sickness and death. Birth, old age, sickness, death. So the, the quality of our life, the experience of our life is impermanence. But what is permanent is the fact that it's impermanence. And that, that knowledge, that understanding, that truth is permanent. One who practices the Buddhist path, what they're doing is bringing their mind to see and recognize these truths, to see that which, which you could say is permanent by studying the way things are. So you're, you're learning to see, well, Everything I have and own in this world is impermanent. 
it arises, passes away. Sometimes we see that in daily life, things arise, pass away, people come and go. Uh, unfortunately, people are born and they die. Our possessions, we have them, then we lose them or they wear out. But eventually, everything must arise and pass away because we have to die. So, but for sure, eventually, we have to let go and lose everything. One who is practicing the Buddhist path is observing this, recognizing this truth. What it does is little by little it frees the mind from suffering. And suffering arises through, we say, three main routes or pathways through greed, anger and delusion. When we're practicing, reflecting on truth, looking at truth, the impermanent nature of this world, the result of that is little by little it's helping us to give up our greed, anger and delusion. It's a process of purifying our heart, purifying our mind from the causes of suffering. Eventually it reaches a point where greed, anger and delusion is completely gone from the heart. In Buddhism we call this Nibbana, it's a state of purity, the mind has seen truth, it's free from suffering uh, and you could say it's, it's also permanent. So what is permanent? It's, it's the very fact that everything is impermanent. It's that knowledge, that understanding, that's what's certain and permanent for human beings. As far as belief goes, he says in the Buddhist path, the Buddhist teachings, we do begin with belief, like other religions, believe in um, what is good, what is bad, good and evil, believe in um, the power of this practice, the, the way of practice to help us to be free from suffering, you might take it on belief first. People, you hear teaching, you read books and you just believe it. But that's not the way, that's not the end of the story, that's not what the Buddha encouraged us to do, just keep on believing. He said, take what you believe, what you've heard and what you believe in and practice with it to see whether it's actually true through your own experience. And the way um, one's practice develops is one gradually gets to the point where one knows things as true rather than just believing in something as true. One knows through one's own experience that something is true. Um, little by little one is actually dropping one's belief. It change, changes into something which, which one internalizes in one's own heart and mind one sees, oh, this is the way things are. Say, for instance, the fact that as human beings we are subject to old age, sickness and death. It's not something one just believes in, but one sees, oh, yeah, this life is impermanent. The things of this world are impermanent. I will have to experience separation. That's the nature of, of this world. That comes not just a theory, but actually something one knows in one's heart. One goes beyond belief. Then uh, we didn't get to the last part of your question. We can just try. The last part of your question is: Yes, it's possible. Some people are psychic and see see the dead. And when when somebody dies, the physical body stops working. That's what death is. It stops functioning. But the consciousness, the mind carries on and you have what you call a subtle body that some people can see after death. So you might, in this case your friend has seen their son, they've seen the subtle body, uh, mind-made body of, of, of the, the, their son 
their mind is in a at a level where they can see consciousness, these subtle bodies in other realms which normally most people cannot see, but a psychic person might be able to see them. It's possible, yes. Does that make sense? Do you have any further questions? Well, I could go on forever, but when you're talking about things being permanent and not permanent, so these people who who see yeah. someone who's passed over right. and they operate and they communicate with them, yeah. so that's not a permanent, they are still functioning after right. they've died. Right. But I, I'm, if I'm understanding you right, through time that will dissipate. Um, you're quite correct. Um, you say somebody dies and maybe somebody psychic can actually see or there's a subtle body. Some people say a ghost or a spirit. Is what's that then if everything's impermanent? Well, that's uh, a new a new life. That spirit, that subtle body is um, is a new life. It, what stops is the physical form. Our physical body has died, but consciousness goes on because it still has attachments, so it's a new life. But even that life is also impermanent. As a spirit, as a ghost, whatever, that will have its beginning, have its end. And that's the nature of existence, as we have endless existences, life after life, because we still have our attachments clinging in the heart, in, in consciousness, which at death, your consciousness goes on because of because of our attachments. It's just the physical form that stops working. Um, so we can have life after life. This is why the Buddha said, mm, "This is suffering, endless birth and death, many many lives. Better to find that which is no longer subject to birth and death, which is what we call nibbana or enlightenment, the the goal of the Buddhist path." It's uh, a state where there's no more birth and death, there's no more uh, impermanence. That's the whole point of the practice. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any more questions? Um, question for me. Yeah. Shannon, um, I have a question about meditation. Um, how do you know when it's... Um, enough and when it's not enough because if we do to a certain point and if we force ourselves to go on we may see less of desire but if we don't we may not be putting enough effort in it so how do you know like when to stop and yeah yeah good question you have to keep reflecting on the results of your practice looking looking at what's going on so if you find you have a lot of desire, you really want to meditate, you have a lot of desire to get results, you want to be peaceful, want to get enlightened and so on. The result of that may be that you start to become more agitated and actually start to be cause of suffering. You've got so much desire there. Um, you should have to stop and recognize, oh, that's a sign I'm attaching too much, expecting too much, wanting too much from my meditation. And it'll actually be an obstacle to becoming peaceful, so you have to just step back a bit and let go a bit of that desire. But then, as you say, you have to also watch for then you suddenly could find you just becoming lazy or just give up, can't be bothered. So you have to stop and say, well, that's not good either. That's 
my mind is still not free from suffering. I have all kinds of moods and disturbances and confusion in my mind, so I should do something about it. I won't be here forever. My life doesn't last forever. I shouldn't just waste my life not doing anything about my state of mind. I should work with it. So you bring your effort up again, a bit more desire up again, but then you don't want to go the other extreme and just get all agitated and stressed because of your meditation. So what you're doing is you're learning how to reflect on the results of what you're doing and see, well, am I becoming more peaceful in this working? And that's a sign it's going in the right direction, maybe at the right level of effort. If you're getting more agitated, more suffering, more unhappy, that's a sign that something needs to be adjusted. And look at it in that way and review what you're doing. Yes, of course, Ajahn Chah encouraged us to develop mindful awareness at all times and basically talk as much mindfulness as you can, maintain, sustain mindfulness all the time. So that means developing mindfulness in each posture, every posture, every activity you're doing. What you find is if you keep practicing mindfulness, bringing up this awareness, the mind starts to become more calm, more clear, and it can see the truth that this body is actually, it's, you know, it's Rupa, it's made of four elements, it's not self. The more mindfulness is sustained, whatever the posture is, you're sitting, or you get up and walk, or you're standing, or you're lying down, the mind will be aware, well, this, this posture change, but what's changing is actually just form made up of elements. There's no self in that. It's not me walking, I'm walking, I'm sitting, I'm doing this. That sense of I starts to disappear. It's just pure awareness, pure knowing through the presence of mindfulness, the posture change. And there's this separation between the mind that knows and the physical form of body. Also, you can, as you practice mindfulness and you're more consistent in your mindfulness, you'll be able to know your own state of mind as well, obviously. As thoughts arise, moods, feelings arise. Again, the continued presence of mindfulness, the more mindfulness you have, you'll be able to see all moods, all thoughts, all feelings are just what they are. They're just thoughts, they're just feelings. Um, there's a separation between the mind with mindfulness, knowing things as they are, and the object, so the thought or the feeling. And the sense of separation becomes very clear because mindfulness is established. So there's a separation between mind and body, mind and feelings, mind and thoughts. So this is what we call the foundations of mindfulness. You're knowing the body in the body. You mean you're knowing the body without a sense of self attaching to it, identifying with it. Knowing feelings as feelings without identifying with them. You are knowing your thoughts as thoughts without identifying with them. This is the way, if you keep practicing mindfulness continuously and you keep developing that, well, that's the experience that will arise. At the back, yeah, somebody has one more question. Where is he? <coughs> one more question. Yeah, that. Um, I was interested in what you were saying about getting off the wheel. Yeah. And Buddha did that. Yeah. Um, I was looking on the internet the other day and I see this young fella sitting on the tree, a monk, and they're calling him 
the young Buddha. Oh yeah. Buddha you know boy. about him? Yeah, Buddha boy. Well, so is that false brother? Buddha wouldn't be reborn again, eh? Right. Yeah, you're right. That's just the name people have given to him. It's not. It's not, not the Buddha. Buddha. No. Any other question? What what is the what is the point where the right point where um, making making effort versus uh, uh, wanting things to go away or wanting to abandon things rather than just being with things and, and understanding your impermanence? How does one find the balance? Again, it comes back to refinement of mindfulness. So if you are in the middle of practicing and various moods, mental states arise that are killer or things that you don't want, and it's establishing mindfulness. If the mind then goes into vipawadana, goes into you know, rejection or aversion to the very mind state one's experiencing, um, one has to catch that craving as, as it's arriving you're judging yourself and say, oh, I shouldn't have this unwholesome thought, this is bad, off the mind goes. So it's establishing mindfulness not only of the unwholesome mind state, which you're know, aiming to abandon, but also your reaction to it. You know, it's the old one, you get angry and then you get angry because you got angry. It's that kind of thing. So it's about keep bringing up mindfulness and seeing these things as objects of mind, as Dhamma, rather than believing and following it, or falling into them, believing them, getting caught up in them. So if you keep practicing, you know, at first it's difficult, is it? Of course, at first it's difficult. You have a mood arise, and then you have another mood because you have the first mood. But if you keep re-establishing mindfulness, you get skilled at it until mindfulness is sharp enough to see whatever is arising, as just a, an object that is impermanent, it rises, it passes away, it's not self, it's just a condition of mind, state of mind arising, passing away, and the mind can let go of it, and it doesn't create any further suffering or craving out of what is arising, it's just knowing it as it is. That's when mindfulness is getting, you know, if you practice it, you're more experienced, you're more skillful, you'll be able to do that better. I think that our tendency is to react to it when uh, there's a certain aversion arises uh, uh, in the right person. Uh, we have a reaction to it. The reaction tends to be getting uh, worse, like I said, and so creating something that will arise again in the future. So, uh, your suggestion is to have, uh, to have that understanding, uh, to know that it is created that we mustn't believe it, that it will go away by itself. Hopefully the energy will dissipate after a while, <laughs> the energy will go away. Is that the right way? Or is it by not reacting, but let it sort of uh, dissipate? True, sometimes our moods and desires are very strong. They overwhelm the mind. Mindfulness is not strong enough to see them and let them go. So you also have other, have other skillful means to help you. Let's say it's anger, you have a lot of anger arise and there's nothing you can do about it, you can't stop it, it's just there. Well, 
turn the mind to start putting attention on metta, bring up the thought of goodwill, letting go of anger, forgiveness, patience, and goodwill, until the mind calms a bit, and then you can establish enough mindfulness to just say, oh, this is just impermanent, not self, and let it go. You might have to do that in different situations. Mindfulness isn't strong enough yet, so you also bring other aspects of the Dhamma practice in at that point to help you to manage that state of mind, that mood that you're caught into. What happens if you let us do good work? Can we do something to the Have patience, have endurance with your own mood, and don't let it lead to you to, to you know, making mistakes or doing unskillful things. If you're very, very angry, can you say with another person, can you look at them in the face when they're that angry? If you can't, don't look at them. the fire <laughs> Sometimes it's like a battle between the Dhamma and the Kilesa, so you have the anger towards something arise. You have enough restraints outwardly, you're not displaying it, you're not acting on it, but it's still coming up as an emotion. You also bring up your mindfulness and your wisdom and your method to deal with it, but it's going on inside, it's like a battle raging on. It's like, I'm determined not to give in to this anger, not to let this anger get the better of me. This has nothing to do with other people now, it's just personal inside. You're fighting there, and you, know, you might reach, it might last many days for this battle, until you reach the point where you have enough mindfulness gathered together, and your mind becomes calm in samadhi. In samadhi you can contemplate this mood is impermanent, it's not self, this body, this mind is impermanent, not self. That whole energy of it, the emotion just dissipates. Mm-hmm. It's got beyond it and transcended it. So that might be many minutes. So really, there's nothing to do about that person. It's all about ourselves, our own emotions, our own. Nothing to do with that person at all. So we shouldn't really be angry with that person, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. It's, it's about working with your own attachments, your own emotions. So we shouldn't blame that person. <laughs> It's like there's two levels. There's the, le- the worldly, normal level, conventional level, and then there's Dhamma, a different level. Maybe on the conventional level, you've done some job or something correctly, done it well, and somebody has come unjustly criticized you or told a lie about you or something. So on the world, well, maybe you have to do something about it because they're telling a lie or they're being unjust, unfair. Maybe you have to do something. On the level of Dhamma, though, it wouldn't be correct to get angry and you know, go and argue with them or something. If you have anger rise over that situation, that is your personal responsibility. That's what you have to practice with, and they're not involved with that at all. That's your own practice in, inside your heart, you're working with that. Maybe on the outside, depending on the situation, maybe on that level you do have to do something. Just asking a question about um, an area. Pugala, a noble one, uh, not understanding is the mindfulness is complete or perfect. So maybe uh, something, a situation arises that would tempt them to be angry, but mindfulness is right there. It's, it's right in touch with the situation, their own 
state of mind so that no anger can arise, there's no space in the mind for the anger to arise, or no place for it to arise. And Anjan says, yeah, this is through the experience developed in the practice of mindfulness and insight, knowing your own heart, freeing it from these kalatas, then mindfulness improves to the point where and the kalatas just can't affect the heart. So you need the simile, and when you begin practicing, somebody is hurts your feelings, or they root you, get you angry. You know, it, it takes a long time, a lot of work to, to remove that anger from your mind. So it's like taking a piece of metal or a knife and scraping on a rock. If you say you carved your name on a rock with a, a knife, well, that engraving will last maybe hundreds or thousands of years, a long time, because you actually chisel the letters into the rock. So as you keep practicing, your mindfulness improves, and it's like maybe writing your name on the earth with a knife. You, know, you can make the impression on the earth, and your name is there for a while, but eventually the earth is soft, and your name will disappear. Later on, your mindfulness improves, then it's like writing on sand. You could write your name in sand, but very quickly that the wind and the rain and people moving around that name on the sand will disappear. Or for someone who's perfected mindfulness, so it's just constant and constantly seeing everything as an each dukkha at a time, letting go of all moods and the objects of mind, then like writing in water. You write in water but nothing stays and it's completely gone. The important thing is not to be like rock. I <laughs> think <laughs> it's like earth or sand. <laughs> Any more? I just have um, the last question. <laughs> <laughs> I think usually, um, like you tend to think, uh, like say for instance, you are hungry, think of maybe eating food, but when you eat in the food, like then you don't like have that same feeling. Before, like say if it's cold weather, you think oh it's really good to have a coffee, makes you warm. Then while you are having the coffee, you don't have the same feeling. That that's like you thinking of the feeling and the um, like it's, you feel like it's impermanent like dummy fear but the but how we can how I can use like if I get sort of a thought for the present moment so that the uh, for the time we now this thought to arise and I use for that for the, uh, for the time we like you know, thinking of now uh, get caught with that thought. Practice is always about establishing mindfulness and then also using wisdom to reflect on your experience. So, if you have hunger, you just know, oh, this body hasn't eaten for a, haven't eaten for a number of hours. It's naturally to start to feel weak, tired, want more food. So you have mindfulness established. This is hunger, feeling of hunger. If you have food available, you go and eat. Fine. You maintain your mindfulness as you're eating, so it's not to overeat. Get lost in just the taste of things, it's just an arm eating to keep the body healthy. If there's no food available yet, or it's not reached the time you're not able to, or you have to have patience, and you just have to know, well, this is how it feels when you're hungry, it feels like this. When I can get food, I will, but at the moment I don't have food. You just know that much, and let go of the whole thing. It's like that, whatever the situation, establish mindfulness in the present moment, like you said, just keeping the present moment, whatever the situation.
be yet enough for today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Quite a while. Give us a rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, to pray. Come back tomorrow.